First Coast Connect with Melissa Ross is sponsored in part by Baptist Health. Good morning and live with you from Studio 2. I'm Brandon Rivers sitting in for Melissa Ross. This is First Coast Connect. Thanks for listening. Just ahead, a preview of Florida's legislative session, which gets underway today. The number to call is 549-2937. Again, that's 549-2937. Then later, a different kind of March Madness. All of that and more ahead. But first this hour, the Florida State Legislature is scheduled to convene today and adjourn on May 5th with a Republican majority in both houses. And it's expected to tackle a number of controversial issues. A.G. Gankarski of Florida Politics in Jacksonville today is on the line now with a preview of key bills to keep an eye on. Good morning, A.G. Hey, good morning, Brennan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Uh, So to start out, what kind of power has Governor Ron DeSantis exerted over the legislature heading into this session? And how much influence do you think he has in shaping the kinds of bills that will ultimately be passed this session? I would say he's the most powerful governor in the state's history right now. Um, He's got a Republican supermajority in the House and the Senate. Um, redistricting helped. The collapse of the Democratic Party in the 2022 election helped. And he's got a lot of loyal foot soldiers in the House and the Senate um, who are willing to carry his key priorities. Um, This allows him plausible deniability. He can basically say that, well, this isn't my bill, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, he can obviously uh, weigh in on the bill through the process, uh, shepherd it along, um, these kinds of things. So you kind of see a, a synergy between the legislative branch and the executive branch, um, especially with the Santa's looking at a 2024 presidential run. I think that's all but certain at this point. Um, he's talked repeatedly about wanting to get some wins. And, you know, a lot of the session is going to be a lot of culture war wins, um, a lot of things that he can take to a Republican um primary voter base and say, hey, let's make America Florida, which is, of course, a tagline in his new book, The Courage to be Free. Um, So, you know, DeSantis is at a point where, you know, he's gotten this legislature he wants, he's got the political climate that he wants, um, and he's not going to waste any of it. Um, Even when he was first elected, you know, he he said this in interviews. um, And, you know, when he got elected in 2018, it's by a very narrow margin. They said, even though I got 50 percent of the vote, I got 100 percent of the executive authority. And what he has done is he's explored that authority. He has stretched that authority. He's got a friendly Supreme Court in the state. So it's the perfect storm for conservative legislation. And even people on the right say that it's not small government conservatism. And it's really not. It's using big government to accomplish right wing ends. And that's the Sanders' brand right now. And the next 60 days is going to put that to the test. Uh, Florida is going to be all over national news. Yeah. And, and so, as you said, the Florida's government is, is basically controlled by Republicans. So what, if anything, can, can Democrats actually accomplish this session? Uh, they can't really accomplish much, um, <laughs> you know, because they've got that two-thirds threshold in both chambers. So uh, Democrats, they can, they can file amendments. But as we've seen in previous sessions... Uh, Democratic amendments usually don't make it through. I don't expect a lot of uh, legislation sponsored by Democrats to even get one committee hearing, much less the three or four they need to actually become law. Um, so Democrats are you know, basically the loyal opposition. Um, nothing more, nothing less in this climate. And it's probably going to be like this um, for a while to come based on the way that the districts are apportioned. I mean, Democratic districts tend to be D plus 30. Um, Republican districts, um, there are plus single digits. Um, and that's because Republicans know um, how to get the no party affiliation voters out, how to get these uh, people to perform, um, how to suppress the vote um, you know, by, by setting up things that make Democratic candidates seem too radical um, in advertising and mail. So um, it's a tough tough landscape for Democrats, even compared to a few years ago. All right. And we've got a lot of bills that we want to touch on today. So let's start with, (laughs) let's, let's try to start touching on some of the, the, the main ones. So let's start with uh, uh, house bill 991, which aims to limit the actual malice requirement that has 
traditionally allowed journalists some room for error so that they're not pressured to self-censor while, while holding powerful people accountable, including elected officials. So what can you tell us about this bill and its chances of passing this session? Uh, this bill is going to make it. Um, a few weeks back, Governor DeSantis held an anti-defamation roundtable with people like Nicholas Sandman, um, others who felt they had been defamed by media um, for taking hard right positions. And you know, the, the takeaway from that was that the New York Times, which has always been ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court in the 1960s, uh, protected media too much, according to the participants and according to the Santa. So enter the Alex Andrade bill. It would limit the actual malice requirement, as you said. Um, it basically would take it from where media is protected from reporting claims um, to a, a less stringent standard. Anonymous sources would be essentially illegal in this uh, legislation. Um, so I, I see this moving very quickly. Um, and it's something that they're willing to take to the U.S. Supreme Court because this is not the Earl Warren Court of the 1960s. Um, this is a, a six-to-three hard-right court. Um, occasionally see people like Gorsuch or Amy Coney Barrett um, dissenting, but you know, you're going to see a revisitation of this uh, standard. And there's a lot of anger on the right about how corporate media, as the Santos likes to call it, misrepresents them. Um, this leaves out, of course, that the right wing has its own corporate media, such as Fox News and so on. Um, but, you know, double standards are, are not the issue here. The issue here is basically um, disempowering the press on the center and the left um, from making the kind of attacks that they've done um, over the years and decades against right wing figures. All right. And sort of a, a related bill is a uh... SB 1316, uh, and this basically says bloggers who receive compensation for a given online post about an elected state officer would now have to register with the Florida Office of Legislative Services or the Commission on Ethics. What, what can you tell us about this bill? Well, that's another uh, free state of Florida special. Um, Jason Broder, uh, the person who filed it, uh, the, there was an alt-weekly that reported that he once paid an InfoWars blogger $37,000. Um, I presume that relationship would now be a part of the registry if this bill comes to pass. Um, and Broder frames as pay-to-play blogs, um, basically electioneering like lobbyists. Um, so he, his theory is that they should register just like a lobbyist might. Um, this is another um, kneecapping toward journalism because while newspapers would be exempt, uh, websites um, – would not necessarily be exempt, including something like Jacksonville Today, um, which is an online publication without a print component. Um, you know, the ACLU and a lot of uh, left-leaning groups have come out against it, but also um, former House Speaker Newt Gingrich. Um, on Sunday, he talked about being a terrible bill and called on Berger to uh, withdraw it. And this is kind of an indication of how the right wing, the conservative movement, has changed over the years. Um, you know, the Broder bill if it passes, would move the ball down the field. Um, whether it's constitutional or not is another matter. This is one that would definitely be challenged. Um, but it would have the, uh, the uh, prototypical chilling effect on media coverage. Um, you know, the idea that reporters would have to register in a public um, registry, have their name, address, and so on, on file, um, setting themselves up for harassment, um, that that could make it a very dangerous uh, world for reporters. And we haven't seen too much of targeting journalists in this country. We don't have to look at Mexico, countries like that, to see that it's very possible for journalists um, to have targets on their back. And this bill would open that up, but it definitely is another brushback uh, pitch to the free press. Um the devil's in the details, and I think in, in this one you'd see a lot of discussion um, as to what, comp, what um, you know, quantifies as compensated post uh, per se. Um, but whether it's a well-crafted bill or not, it definitely is one that is getting headlines. All right, and listeners, if you're just joining us, I'm Brendan Rivers, and you're listening to First Coast Connect. Today we're previewing Florida's legislative session with A.G. Gankarski of Florida Politics in Jacksonville today. 
Um, all right, so uh, let's let's take some calls. We've got Wells from the South Side on the line. Good morning, Wells. Good morning. Um, what I'd like to say is um, the system that we're living under right now um, is not providing the needs of the people, and the governor is not working on issues that will provide universal health care, um, raising the minimum wage, housing, and you go down the list. So who he's working for is not the people. And what the people are going to have to do is build a massive grassroots movement to fight against what is happening, like we did in the 60s with the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, the women's uh, movement. And um, I think that that's uh, the next move for the 99% of us. Thank you. All right. Thank you for your call, Wells. Um, so, yeah, AG, to the, to the caller's point, I mean, a lot of the, the bills that we've already discussed and that we're going to discuss are, are touching on things that kind of fall under that culture wars category. They're, they're things like uh, bills that target transgenderism and, and, and things like that. They're not things that actually affect uh, affordable housing or, or how much uh, residents are getting paid. What, what, what are your thoughts on the direction that lawmaking is, is going in Florida? Yeah, we're we're stuck with this probably for another decade um, until there's legislative reapportionment. Um, because, as I said earlier, it's kind of baked into the cake that you're going to have a very strong Republican majority, if not a supermajority, for the next decade. Um, the next exit ramp would be the 2026 election for governor, honestly, um, where Democrats, you know, could make a play theoretically. Um, the Democratic Party, the state, is very weak right now. Republicans have a registration advantage. Um, it's up to new chair Nikki Free to do something about those issues. But um, it, it's hard to really have confidence that the Democrats can play the political game um, in the way the Republicans have. And that's why you're seeing these, these culture war conservative wish list bills prioritized. Um, in the absence of meaningful resistance, that's what you get. And you know, compared to previous sessions where you'd have people making a lot of noise about affordable housing, you're not hearing that this time around. Um, it's a different climate in Tallahassee, and um, that's um, that's one that's not going to immediately self-correct, um, no matter what the 99% may want, um, just because of the way um, things are set up right now. All right. Well, let's let's get back into some of the bills. I know one that you're keeping a close eye on is uh, HB 999, uh, which targets universities, public and private, and and would kind of, in a lot of ways, restructure them and and how they're able to handle certain topics. Can you tell us about this bill? Yeah, this is one of the biggest talkers. I'll, I'll be on Scripps News at 10 a.m. discussing this also with N.S. Kamani, a representative from Central Florida. Um, it would ban uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, funding at state universities. Um, if you know what happened at New College, um, where they basically X out that program, um, that would be system-wide. Um, it also takes faculty out of the decision of hiring decisions. Um, trustees would uh, make the decision. And, you know, boards of trustees, these are appointed by the governor. Um, you know, therefore, you know, your, your favorite left-wing professor uh, may not get hired in this case. Um, another kneecapping toward um, the ideological freedom of the academy, tenure status can be reviewed at any time. Um, so whereas you have a system now where you have permanent tenure that protects um, you know, educators as they do academic research and probe into topics that um, advance learning, um, this basically cuts that down and um, sets them up to basically it's right-to-work state except for uh, professors. Um, that's a kind of new thing. University mission statements, they would be rewritten. Uh, general education courses that teach curriculum based on unproven theoretical or exploratory content like um, diversity initiatives or so-called critical race theory, um, anything that's intersectional. Um, you know, these, these courses would be on the chopping block, as would the majors. Um, and American history, um, which is been something that's been explored in all sorts of ideological ways, 
it would basically be dumbed down to an eighth grade level. Um, you know, it, it basically anything that is contrary to the creation of the universal principle stated in the Declaration of Independence would be thrown out. Um, so an education in the state of Florida would be radically different than it would be in a lot of states. Um, it would be ideologically driven, uh, and, and you could see changes in universities very quickly based on this. Um, this is a hot bill. It's gotten resistance on the right. Um, you know, conservative intellectuals have complained about it. Um, they don't like one aspect or another. But, you know, it, it's not about them. It's not about the intelligentsia. And, you know, kind of an irony of this is that Ron DeSantis, he benefited from some of the very best education in the world, uh, went to Yale for undergrad, went to Harvard Law for uh, law school. So, you know, he was incubated in these bastions of free thought. And um, his takeaway from that is that, you know, Florida students uh, don't deserve those those rights or be able to explore that kind of uh, that kind of thing. So there's kind of an irony there. By the way, I am myself a new college graduate, um, so I've been keeping a close eye on this stuff. Um, but we got, I'll bet you have. Yeah. Um, so we've got another caller on the line, Tom from the West Side. Good morning, Tom. What's your question? Uh, good morning. Yes, I just think that it is absolutely outrageous that our governor is using legislation to uh, to retaliate against anyone who disagrees with him. He's gone against uh, Major League Baseball, Cruise Lines, and Disney. And now he's coming after education and the media. And it's like, we, how on earth do we tolerate such thin skin behavior? Um, this needs to be addressed. All right. Thank you for your call, Tom. A.G., what are, what are your thoughts on that point? Well, again, it comes back to politics. I mean, the fact that Andrew Gillum and Ron DeSantis ran a race that went to recount, and then four years later, Charlie Crist was not remotely competitive. I think the Democrats carried four or five counties total um, in the state. Um, it, it speaks to decisions made by the Democratic Party uh, to provide a Republican light model that did not meet the moment. Uh, Nikki Freed was in that race. Uh, Nikki Freed was repudiated by the uh, by Democratic voters. Um, and I think she would have represented more of a uh, spirited debate against DeSantis. Um, you know, even if she didn't win that election. But, you know, this is this illustrates the, the axiom that elections have consequences. And, you know, if if voters had wanted something different, um, they would have made a different choice in the governor's election in 2018 because that would have been the stop. Um, Andrew Gillen, for all of his character issues, would have had a veto pen. And he could have stopped a lot of the worst ideas coming out of Tallahassee. But the last four years have seen an emboldening of the hard right in the state. And, you know, compared to where it was in, you know, previous sessions when you had Senate presidents who had to basically account for moderates in their caucus because the Senate was basically the bulwark against the populist ideas in the House. Uh, right now, the Senate is basically just like the House. You're seeing a lot of the same ideas, the same precepts, and um, it's hard to mount resistance to that. All right, and several bills this session have been filed that are, are targeting transgenderism, and I know at least one of them was, was filed by local state Senator Clay Yarbrough. Uh, can you kind of run us through quickly what some of these bills are, are aiming to do? Sure thing. I mean, Clay Yarbrough, he's one of the most conservative people in the city council when he was here. Um, he kind of had a quiet tenure in the House for six years, but he's making up for it with the Senate uh, first year. Um Senate Bill uh, 1438 would revoke the license of any public establishment that admits a child to an adult live drag show performance. Uh, so things like a drag queen Christmas or theoretically if kids went to something like Hamburger Mary's, um, that would be uh, disallowed. Uh, Senate Bill 1320, it extends the parental rights and education bill. Um, it, it bans people in educational settings from using so-called preferred pronouns. So if you were assigned a pronoun at birth, that's your pronoun. Um, it would extend the uh, ban on classroom instruction regarding sexual orientation and gender identity until the ninth grade. So kids might not hear about those for 15 or 16 years old in some cases. Uh, there are House bills that are similar to this that are moving, but the Senate product is the most um, inclusive here, and I think that's the one you're going to have to watch. Um, Senate Bill 254, that's another yard rear bill. It would give the state temporary emergency jurisdiction over children. Um, if they are getting gender-affirming care, 
um, that's sex reassignment care um, in different wording, and basically would ban um, healthcare providers from providing that kind of treatment to children under the age of 18 or face uh, losing their license. Um, so, you know, these bills, um, you've also got a bathroom bill that basically uh, mandates single-sex bathrooms, um, and that this allows people who are going through gender transition from entering the bathroom doesn't correspond with their birth gender. That's sponsored by Aaron Grawl, also in the Senate. Um, so again, you're seeing some really hard right conservative wish list legislation coming through um, the Senate rather than the House. So that's an interesting switch. All right, we got another caller on the line. We have Lisa. It looks like Lisa's calling in from Tallahassee. Good morning, Lisa. Hello. Hey, you're on the line, Lisa. Good. Oh, I'm sorry. It was a little uh, staticky. Um, I wanted to ask about uh, voter suppression and and um, and gerrymandering. All right, AG. Uh, what can you tell us about uh, gerrymandering and and any voter suppression that has has been reported on? Well, I mean, the, the gerrymandering is really an issue for last session. Um, you, you saw the the House and the Senate basically pick. Um, you know, seats that were leveraged toward Republican pickups that happened, uh, the congressional gerrymandering, um, that wiped out the congressional district five that was traditionally um, a black Democrat district. Corrine Brown and Al Lawson represented the area. Now Aaron Bean represents the area. And, um, you know, so we've, we've seen that baked into the cake. Um, I'm not expecting a lot of elections uh, legislation to move through because the 2024 election uh, supervisors are already getting ready for that, and the supervisors have already said if you make any changes, um, you know, don't make them to take effect by the 2024 election because we're going to be getting ready for that um, pretty much by the end of this year uh, because of the presidential preference primary and things like that. So, you know, these issues have already happened. All right, and uh, there were several environmental bills that were filed as well. The one that really caught my eye was. Uh, HB 1197, SB 1240, and this would prohibit counties and municipalities from adopting laws, regulation, rules, or policies relating to water quality or quantity, pollution control, pollutant discharge, prevention or removal of, and uh, wetlands. Uh, so this this really caught my eye because, uh, I mean, I've been reporting on climate change for the past several years, and, and, and fossil fuel emissions are a form of pollution, and, and wetlands are kind of one of the, the main solutions when we're talking about trying to capture and store carbon or, or provide uh, protection for communities from flooding and storm surge. Uh, what can you tell us about this bill and sort of this, this trend we've been seeing of preemption bills? Yeah, I mean, preemption bills are, are hot in the Republican legislature. Um, it's a way of knocking down Democratic-controlled cities. Um, you know, and basically, the way Danny Burgess, the Senate sponsor, explained this one is Water runs through various cities, so for for cities to regulate water, um, that's short-sighted. It gets in the way of business interests, um, and this would, you know, stop those kind of uh, bills from moving through. SB 1240, um, a land and water management bill, kind of does the same thing, preempts the regulation to the state. Um, so those bills have worked hand-in-hand, basically, um, to keep localities from really having any say in how water is regulated. Um, the water management districts would have a bigger say. Department of Environmental Protection, obviously, these are appointees by Ron DeSantis. Um, so whatever the governor wants, the governor would get in these cases. Uh, and it'd be one more issue where localities would have their hands tied. All right. Well, AG, I know you've got to go and prepare for your next interview, but thank you very much for joining us this morning. We always appreciate your insight. Thank you for the time, Brendan, and good luck. All right. Appreciate it. All right, much more still ahead later in the hour. March Madness for local music fans. But up next, the 13th Annual Autism Symposium at the University of North Florida. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. There's an autism symposium featuring nationally renowned experts taking place at UNF tomorrow. One of them is Dr. Emily Hotez, assistant professor at the University of California, Los Angeles, David Geffen School of Medicine. She joins us now along with Jackie Bargus, program manager for the annual autism symposium for a preview of tomorrow's event. Thanks for joining me this morning. Great to be here. Thank you for having us. All right, Dr. Hotez, let's uh, start with you. Stigma is, is kind of a big issue when we're talking about autism. Can you explain to our audience what is the stigma in this context? Absolutely. So stigma, generally speaking, is when we identify human difference and attribute negative qualities to that difference. And of course, lots of marginalized populations experience stigma. Uh, I am particularly focused on the stigma experienced by people with intellectual or developmental disabilities, or IDDs. Uh, and developmental disabilities are uh, disabilities that are considered to start early and last uh, a lifetime. Uh, one in six children has an IDD, uh, and uh, I am particularly focused on autistic children. Uh, aut autism affects one in 44 children, so uh, autism is now as, as common as green eyes or red hair. Uh, and stigma, uh, when we think about stigma, we oftentimes think about a child you know, getting bullied on the playground or maybe overt discrimination. Uh, but stigma really can occur in many implicit ways all throughout the life course for people with IDD, including autism. Uh, it can occur in the language that people use, kind of the subtle parts of conversation, uh, but could also occur in practices or policies in schools or doctor's offices uh, that might exclude or or denigrate this population. All right, uh, and Jackie, can you can you tell us a little bit more about IDD, what it is, and, and and how that population experiences stigma? Well, I mean, I can I can speak to it firsthand. Um, I have a autistic son. He's a graduate of the North Florida School of Special Education. He um, is in their post grad program there, and he's delightful and wonderful. And uh, he has two passions, music and cleaning. And uh, his music, uh, he is a uh, plays in, he's in his fifth season with the Jacksonville Symphony Youth Orchestra, and he plays a cello, and he plays multiple instruments. He can read music. And he also has his own group, St. John and Friends. And it, it's leading it, it is a plug, but it's also <laughs> leading into uh, how we've experienced stigma. Um, when my son was first diagnosed, when he was really young, uh, we went to see a specialist, um, pediatric neurologist. And when we were in his office, he said to me, um, well, he's not going to be like him, pointing to my husband, who is a physician. And that always stuck with me. That always bothered me. And um, I know um, the physician di didn't mean to, to, I think he was just being absolutely frank mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that was his delivery. So, but I always remembered that. And he's no longer with us, but uh, I wish, I, I wish um, he was here today because I would bring him, bring my son back to his office. And, and I would say, I know you're right. He did not, he didn't, he was not able, he would not go to medical school. But I do know that my husband can't read music and my husband can't, has never played in the, uh, the youth orchestra. Mm -hmm. So it's about, um, I just think that we as parents, caregivers, um, we experience stigma every day mm -hmm. in big ways and in little ways. And um, so I'm so thrilled that Emily is here because I've never had a lecture before on stigma. And I, I think her research is really fascinating. So and this is one of the exact reasons why I got into this line of work, because my sister, who is three years younger than I am, uh, is autistic, Rachel, uh, and she's inspired all of my work today because just like with Jackie, I've really noticed that Rachel has experienced lots of both explicit and implicit stigma throughout her lifetime. That comment from, from uh, her son's doctor, uh, you know, I think that um, siblings and caregivers everywhere can relate to, to that comment. All right. Uh, and I'm, I'm really just starting to learn more about autism. So if I misspeak or say something improper, please feel free sure. to correct me. Um, uh, Jackie, when was your son diagnosed? He was diagnosed at um, two and a half. 
And, um, and I tell this story often, and um, he was diagnosed by a wonderful pediatrician here in, in, um, in Jacksonville. And he said, you know, I've been practicing a long time, um, but I think that we need to do some further evaluation. And he mentioned the word autism. And um, I was like, I don't, I had never heard the word. I did not know. Mm-hmm. Um, then I quickly found out. And, um, you know, I live autism every day. Uh, it doesn't go away. It is, it is here to stay. Um, but you learn to work with that, and you learn to help your child. If I can bar- borrow um, Sally Hazlip's uh, great line, to you help your child be the best version of themselves. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's my goal in life for my son. Um, and, and as a parent, I'm, I'm just hoping you can kind of communicate to our audience because I think a lot of parents have this, this real fear of, of having a child with autism. Sure. Um, what, what is it like having a child with autism? And do you think there's any reason for people to be afraid of that? Well, um, I think you are initially, uh, you have a grieving process, I think. And, uh, when you initially get the diagnosis, uh, I certainly wasn't expecting that. Um, I also think that, um, that there's fear of the own unknown. And I think the onus is on us as parents to um, do the very best that we can for our children. That may include, you know, different kinds of therapies, speech therapy, occupational therapy, uh, maybe ABA therapy, which is applied behavior analysis. Get to know your local community, what's going on, um, you know, in terms of resources. And um, so I, 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 understand, I understand, you know, the fear. All right, Dr. Hotez, you'll be lecturing on uh, healthcare providers' lack of knowledge about people with IDD and, and the current gaps in medical education. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. And and Jackie and I were just uh, having a conversation before this. Um, you know, I, I think if I could give your listeners one takeaway, it would be to not only think about autism from a deficit-based lens. Mm-hmm. Autistic individuals have so many strengths and so much of what we consider to be disability is because of society's unwillingness to accommodate people who process the world differently and think differently. And those differences should be celebrated. So in my work and in my research, I really emphasize principles of neurodiversity, uh, which is uh, really an understanding that everyone's minds and brains are different. You learn differently than I learn, and that's okay. There's no better or worse way. And so often healthcare providers, from the outset, they uh, unfortunately uh, emphasize the deficits of autism when providing a diagnosis. And, you know, Jackie was talking about this grieving process, and many families experience that because, of course, the, the doctor is telling, their, their, telling them about all the things that their child will never be able to do. Uh, so I work quite a bit with autistic researchers, autistic doctors, and we really uh, try to uh, uh, instill in, in physicians who we work with, you know, to try to approach healthcare from a neurodiversity lens. Uh, we don't need to only lead with the deficits. And so much of the reason why physicians are leading with the deficits and not with neurodiversity is because medical education simply doesn't cover people with IDD or autism to the extent that is necessary. And of course, medical school, I don't know how, you, how all of you medical students do it. There is so much content. Um, and IDD is just one of, I don't know, millions of topics that they have to become expert in. Uh, but what uh, my colleagues and I at UCLA really uh, are working on is creating a robust neurodiversity-oriented medical education for medical students, um, for residents, for uh, current healthcare providers. And if I could just add, add to that, Brendan, um, I know um, because this, our symposium is, we have the day symposium at UNF, but we also have uh, a grand rounds lecture at the hospital. And then we have a, um, a, a uh, an event this evening for um, physicians um, is that um, I have asked physicians, what did you ever have any kind of training 
about the IDD population in medical school, and almost all of them say no. Mm. Not no, excuse me, very little. So I know that there is, they, they embrace that. They are interested in that information. So I, again, that's why I'm so happy to have Emily here. They want the training for sure. And what we know from developmental psychology research is that we know the stigma exists all throughout the life course. So by the time doctors become doctors, they may have many uh, uh, misinformed ideas about what people with IDD can do or what their abilities are. And they don't get corrected in medical school. And ultimately, uh, healthcare quality could be so much stronger if we did have more of a robust IDD curriculum in medical school and in training. Well, we got a caller on the line. We have Curtis from the North Side. Good morning, Curtis. Good morning, uh, and good morning to you too, ladies. I appreciate you so much. I love First Coast Connect. <laughs> we do too, so Curtis. Sharing, I thank you so much for sharing your experiences. I have no one that I know of uh, close to me, but I've always, my heart goes out for those parents and loved ones and the kids or the people who are born with that uh, autism. Mm-hmm. And Thank you for sharing your experiences. It's, it's, it's priceless. Thank you so much. Thank you. You Kurt. sound like you could be a great volunteer with uh, our population, oh, yeah. well, Curtis. Okay, well, um, send, uh, tell me what, what I need to call it, and um, I will. <laughs> All righty. Uh, you can send me an email, uh, Jacqueline, J-A-C-Q-U-E-L-I-N-E, dot Vargas, B-A-R-G-A-S, at bmcjacks.com. And I'll get you hooked up. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much for the call, Curtis. We appreciate it. Um, And for any listeners who are just tuning in, you're listening to First Coast Connect. I'm Brendan Rivers sitting in for Melissa Ross. I'm speaking with Dr. Emily Hotez and Jackie Vargas about uh, tomorrow's autism symposium at UNF. Um, Dr. Hotez, I'd I'd love to hear a little bit more about your your sister, Rachel. Can you tell us about her and sort of your your family's experience uh, with her? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So my sister, Rachel, uh, three years younger than I am. So really, I've been with Rachel throughout my whole lifetime. And, uh, you know, as we've been developing, I've really seen where our trajectories diverge. Um, And I've really witnessed her experiencing stigma uh, all throughout her life course in in many different ways. Um, For example, uh, when we were children, you know, Rachel, many, many people with autism have uh, well, first, maybe I'll, I'll tell you you and your listeners a little bit about what, what autism even is. Uh, so uh, autism is um, it, one of the IDDs, and it occurs in one in 44 children uh, in the U.S. And uh, generally, children, uh, any individual, any autistic individual has distinct social and communication challenges or preferences They may tend to have certain uh, fixations on interests or certain um, repetitive behaviors. Uh, But the saying goes, if you know one person with autism, you know one person with autism Mm -hmm. because autism is so different uh, across people. Uh, But my own sister, she uh, she is uh, she has many strengths. Uh, She has a wonderful sense of humor. She. has bright red hair and she's super tall, which is very uh, different than the rest of my family. We are all <laughs> five three and under. Um, but I, I would witness, you know, when she was a child walking down the street with with uh, with our family, you know, she uh, has heightened sensory sensitivities. So she would walk on her tiptoes, sometimes flap her hands, talk very loudly. I would see mothers kind of shield their children away from Rachel. And we actually know from the research, this is very common, this perception that people with IDD are dangerous um, Mm -hmm. and we need to avoid them. And unfortunately, over time, because of that idea, so many people never actually have authentic, meaningful connections with people with IDD. They never meet them. So, of course, our doctors don't feel comfortable working with people with IDD. They've never had real interactions with them. Uh, So I've definitely seen that that with Rachel as well. And and do you think that that sort of fear is just linked to that, like people just kind of being averse to what they don't know and what they don't understand. Do you think that's what it is? Yeah, lack of uh, understanding, uh, lack of education. But also we have to look at the broader societal context and see how autism is portrayed in things like the media where stereotypes are often perpetuated. Um, you know, a, a child is alone in a room flapping their arms or, um, you know, doing whatever stereotypical behavior is promoted in that particular movie 
We've seen media campaigns that describe autism as kidnapping your child. So it really comes as no surprise to me that people have such negative perceptions uh, of autism and of people with IDD. And I've, I've certainly witnessed that healthcare settings are not immune to this as well. Uh, I've seen doctors simply say Rachel is too complex to treat and uh, primary care providers would refer her out to specialists for things that are not required for, for specialists. Um, and we, of course, see that in the research as well, that this happens all throughout the life course. Uh, and I think a lot of people, when, when they talk about autism, they talk about the, the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Uh, can, you, can you kind of explain what the spectrum is and kind of give us an idea of what the different ends of it look like? And, and, and are there, there people who are incredibly high functioning and like maybe you wouldn't even know that they're, they're on the spectrum? The autism spectrum is incredibly diverse. You're absolutely right. Um, I work with a number of autistic researchers and autistic doctors, and um, they are very clear that they do not represent the autism population. They can certainly provide guidance and expert consultation on on what autism is and what the needs and experiences of the population are. Uh, But there are many uh, autistic individuals like my sister who have higher support needs Uh, have distinct services and supports that they really rely on um, to promote their quality of life. Uh, Many uh, individuals with autism have uh, uh, different kinds of social and communication challenges in terms of speaking. Um, You might have uh, intellectual disability along with autism, but that's a very common misconception that everyone with autism has an intellectual disability. Uh, but not all do. So the spectrum is quite diverse. You're definitely right. All right. And Jackie, we are coming uh, up to a hard break in just uh, about a minute here. So can you quickly tell us a little bit more about the event tomorrow, who's going to be speaking and, and where listeners yes. can get more info? I have to put my specs on. Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. Just I, I might have to cut you off a minute just, okay. to, just to give you a heads up. <laughs> so we have um, Dr. John Constantino, who was formerly with St. Louis Children's Hospital. And he is now, he just moved up to Atlanta and he is at the... Um, Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, and he is a child and adolescent psychiatrist. This will be his third time here. He's extremely popular, fantastic, and he, uh, Brendan, is going to be talking about mental health and the IDD population, and I've never had that covered before, too, so I'm super excited. I know Emily is, too, to uh, have Dr. Constantino. All right, great, and, and what, where can uh, listeners go to find out more information and sign up? Um, they can go to uh, autismsymposium13.org eventbrite.com. All right. Great. Sign up today, please. Yeah. Well, thank you both of you so much for joining us today. It was a really enlightening conversation. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much for having us, Brendan. Of course. All right. And uh, you're listening to First Coast Connect. I'm Brendan River sitting in for Melissa Ross. Uh, we'll be right back in just a few minutes. So stay tuned. Hi, join me, Dr. Joe Servin, for What's Health Got to Do With It, a weekly program that examines where and how healthcare intersects with your daily life. I'll speak with local and national healthcare leaders and newsmakers to help you navigate your most pressing medical issues. Saturdays at 4 p.m. and Sundays at 9 p.m. on WJCT News 89.9. Just a couple years ago, Americans were saving money at one of the highest rates on record. Not anymore. Savings are dropping and credit card debt is rising. Sometimes it feels very like heavy, like crushing. You know, I'm going to have to pay this back. I have to pay this back. I'm Elsa Chang. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Starting at 4 on WJCT News 89.9. Next time on The World, a Cuban man in Spain is going home again for the first time in four years. We Cubans get a list from our family every time we visit the island. Usually it's electronics or office supplies. This time, however, the only thing they wanted was food, just normal food. One family story of the economic crisis that's gripping Cuba. It's on The World. This afternoon at 3, here on WJCT News 89.9. 
Senator Bernie Sanders has become one of the most influential voices in Congress over the past 30 years. One key issue has driven his politics and two presidential campaigns. Senator Sanders is out with a new book, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. We talk with the senator and put your questions to him next time on 1A. Today, starting at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. Welcome back. Our friends at the Florida Times Union have created a riff on March Madness. It features musicians with ties to Duval County. Tom Zarletta of the Florida Times Union is here now with more. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. All right, so so tell us about this this March Madness riff and, and how you came up with it. Well, uh, the Times Union is part of the Gannett chain, which has papers across the country and across the state. And they wanted us to do a bracket challenge. Um, a lot of the other papers chose to do pizza or, or best wings or things like that. Uh, I, I wanted to avoid that because, well, first of all, I didn't want, that's somebody's livelihood, you know? Mm. Yeah, you're going to pick the best pizza, but you're also going to pick the worst pizza. So I wanted to kind of avoid <laughs> that. Um, but 15 years ago or so, we did a big 64 team um, bracket to determine the best American rock band. Mm. Um, and so I, I went back to that well this time but just focused it. It's just 16 acts and they're all from Jacksonville. All right. And how did you decide on the bands or the musicians to include? Um, pretty much just from, I've been here for 20 years, 22 years, um, as an entertainment writer, mostly. Um, so a lot of it was just off the top of my head. Um, and, and a lot of it, I went in, um, the, the field is not the field that it started at. Mm. I, I kept going in and taking him in and, putting them out um the tricky part was that from jacksonville um leonard skinnard for instance which we just lost gary Rossington yesterday um, but that that band was formed by guys from jacksonville in jacksonville um so clearly that qualifies but an act like pat boone for instance um pat boone was born in jacksonville left at age three <laughs> um but you know so it was it was kind of tenuous um but but i put him in um, the tricky part is who didn't make it. And you know, that's next week's story is here's, <laughs> here's 40 bands that, that should have been in, but, but didn't. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I have the feeling that a lot of public radio fans maybe aren't super familiar with, uh, college basketball and March Madness. So can um, you, can you kind of quickly explain how this, this bracket works and, and also how people can participate? Sure. Uh, well, first of all, to participate, just go to jacksonville.com. Um, and it should be right there on the front page. Uh, I believe it's called Jacksonville's best music or best music act challenge. Um, and that best is a term I didn't like, but, um, uh, because ultimately we're going to pick the favorite. Yeah. Um, um, so, so that's where you'd go to go to do it. Okay. Um, and, 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 oh, it's, so it's set up th this week. There is, there's our eight. So 16 acts are in the field. Um, they're set up as pairings. So you just pick your favorite from that pairing and they'll, They'll advance to next week. The winner will advance to next week. Okay. Uh, do you have any favorites on this? Um, well, I, I, I seeded Ray Charles as the number one seed. Um, his, his connection to Jacksonville is um, he went to school at, in St. Augustine and then moved here and lived here for several years and played a lot of his early shows here. Um, his connection isn't as strong as others, but he is such a titanic musical act that he was the first seed. Um, although personally, I think Leonard Skinner will win because that is the band that is most associated with Jacksonville. Okay. And, and when will the uh, winner of this uh, bracket be announced? Uh, well, th the winner of this round will, will be announced Thursday and then you can vote again. They'll advance, um, you know, we'll eliminate the, the losers advance, um, set up new pairings and next Monday you can vote again and it'll be four rounds total. Okay. So four weeks. From yes. now, we'll we'll yeah. have the the ultimate winner of this, right? And and voting opens Mondays and goes through Thursdays at two o'clock, I believe it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, and I was looking through this and some of the descriptions of some of the acts, and, and you already kind of talked about Ray Charles and mm -hmm. his history here was really interesting. Was, was there any other uh, groups or individuals that you you came across as you're preparing this and just thought, wow, this is really interesting? Their their connection to Jacksonville. Um, yeah, there's some that that you wouldn't have thought um, are from Jacksonville. Um, you know, the Almond Brothers band, for instance, there's only one guy that the drummer, Butch Trucks, was from Jacksonville. 
but the band was formed here. There's just a historic marker in front of the house over on, on, uh, in Riverside. Um, so, so, you know, there's a big connection there. Uh, Rita Coolidge was, um, was a big, um, pop singer in the seventies and eighties. Um, uh, she went to Jackson high school mm-hmm. that, that who knew that? Um, so that, that's part of the, part of the mission of this, this package is to educate people that, Hey, look who's from Jacksonville. Yeah. This is a pretty impressive musical history in this mm-hmm. town. Um, I keep learning more about it. It's, it's really fascinating. Uh, anything else about this that you think our, our listeners should know? Um, the, several of the bands, um, are still active. And several of them, several of them will be playing in town over the next couple of weeks. You can see um, Tedeschi Trucks Band is going to be playing at Daly's Place in June. Uh, Shinedown has a, a show at the arena. Um, Classics 4 was, was a, a 60s pop band. Um, they're going to be playing as part of the Happy Together Tour that's coming to the Florida Theater. J.J. J. J. Gray and Mofro are in the field. Um, they're playing two nights at St. Augustine <laughs> Amphitheater um, next month. So a lot of these bands are active and still playing and, and coming here. Hmm. And are, are those performance details in uh, the the web link for, for this bracket? Uh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. great. All right. So, yeah, everyone go check it out. Uh, vote for your favorite band in the bracket. Find out about some of the, the acts that are coming to town in the near future. Uh, definitely a really cool project. Uh, thank you so much for coming in, Tom. I appreciate it. Glad to do it. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening to First Coast Connect. I'm Brendan Rivers sitting in for Melissa Ross. David Luckin is our executive producer. Our senior producer is Heather Schatz. Our producer is Bridget O'Brien. Our director is Isabella De Silva, with technical help from Morning Edition host Michelle Corum. Do you have questions or comments about First Coast Connect? Send an email to firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. Again, you're listening to First Coast Connect on WJCT News 89.9 Jacksonville. Thanks for tuning in, and have a great day. Please don't say Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.